Welcome everybody. Uh, many apologies to those who couldn't get in and congratulations to those who did. Um, my name is Professor Michael Cox. I'm in the Department of International Relations here at the LSE. Uh, and I'm Director of the Cold War Studies Centre and of the newly formed uh, Ideas on Diplomacy and Strategy at the LSE. Uh, one of the functions, indeed one of the fundamental purposes of a university is to encourage debate even with people you don't necessarily agree with, and to do so in a civilised and fair-minded fashion, and I hope we certainly will do that tonight. I'm delighted to welcome along with two old friends from the United States, uh, John Mearsheimer from the University of Chicago, and Professor Stephen Walt. Uh, uh, Professor Mearsheimer, I won't say when he was born, because I've got it here in front of me, so I won't say a word on that, John. Uh, but, but John, over many years, has established a massive reputation um, um, as what I suppose would be called an offensive realist. I'm not quite sure if that's the right description, John. Uh, whose recent book on the tragedy of great powers, I think, has uh, stirred up as much as the thesis, which I think he has advanced here with Steve Walk to this evening and over the last few years. And, um, and obviously that thesis on the Israel lobby and U.S. foreign policy. John has a, a long and distinguished career and indeed was a member of the U.S. Army from the age of 17 and joined the Air Force in the 1970s. Um, the other speaker, uh, equally distinguished, Steve Walt from the University of Harvard, is the Robert and Rennie Balfour Professor of International Relations at Harvard. Uh, Steve, again, equally distinguished, author of many, many books over many years, uh, The Origins of Alliances in the 1980s, uh, Revolution and War, Taming American Power, etc., etc., etc. And, of course, both together were themselves both open and vocal critics, as, as, as I'm sure many of you know, of the Bush policy towards Iraq. But what has obviously stirred uh, the blood, uh, created controversy, generated discussion, both here across the Channel and certainly across the Atlantic in the United States, is their book, is their study on the, Israel foreign on, on the role of Israel in the making of American foreign policy, and that's what they'd be talking about tonight. Uh, what the, the way we're going to conduct this, quite simply, is that uh, Steve Walt, gentleman here to my immediate left, will begin the proceedings for 15 minutes. They've been very precise about this. And then Professor Mearsheimer will continue. He says for 17 minutes. This is a very well-coordinated, <laughs> well-planned uh, well thing we have for you tonight. And then they wanted as many questions, and they will try and provide as many answers as possible. I think in the best LSE fashion, we should welcome both Professor Walt and Professor Mearsheimer to the LSE, and Professor Walt will begin the proceedings. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you very much for that very kind introduction. I want to particularly thank Mick for the kind words about us, and I certainly want to thank all of you for coming tonight. We are looking forward to an interesting discussion with you. Uh, we're going to talk about two main questions today. Uh, the first question is, is there a powerful pro-Israel lobby in the United States? And if so, how does it work? How does it operate? Uh, and second, the second question, on balance, is the influence of the Israel lobby positive or negative for the United States, but also uh, for Israel? And I'm going to address the first question, and John is going to tackle the second but before I get started, I want to acknowledge how difficult it is to raise this subject um, and why it does need to be handled with some sensitivity. Um, if we were here to talk about America's energy policy, uh, it would be natural for us to talk about the political influence of oil companies. Uh, if we were here to talk about gun control or what there is of it in the United States, uh, 
it would hardly be controversial if I were to bring up the National Rifle Association. Uh, if I were talking about American policy towards Cuba, you wouldn't be surprised if I mentioned the role of the Cuban-American population and its impact on American policy there. But when the subject turns to Middle East policy and you bring up the Israel lobby, you're inviting controversy. In America, we would say you're reaching out and grabbing the third rail with both hands. Now, that's partly because some of the groups in the lobby are very quick to attack anyone who criticizes the policies that they're advocating. But it's also because this entire discussion takes place in the shadow of centuries of anti-Semitism, which, of course, includes bizarre conspiracy theories like the Protocols of the Elders of Zion and tragic events like the Holocaust. And this history shapes how we all think and talk about this subject. So if you talk about a powerful interest group in the United States that is mostly, though by no means exclusively, comprised of Jewish Americans, some may think that you're saying there is some kind of secret conspiracy to control American foreign policy. If you say that media coverage in the United States tends to be pro-Israel, it sounds to some people like you're making that old canard charge that Jews control the media. If you talk about campaign contributions by pro-Israel political action committees, some people think you're saying that Jewish money is doing something illegitimate or improper. I want to be very clear at the outset. John and I reject every one of those various anti-Semitic conspiracy theories. For us, the Israel lobby is an interest group just like lots of other interest groups. Most of its activities are entirely appropriate, entirely legitimate forms of political engagement. It is not a cabal or conspiracy or anything like that. John and I don't question Israel's legitimacy or its right to exist. In fact, we believe the United States should come to Israel's aid if its survival is ever in jeopardy. But we also think that the activities of the lobby and its impact on U.S. foreign policy is a subject that reasonable people ought to be able to discuss openly the same way we would discuss the role of any other groups that try to influence American policy, foreign or domestic. So what are we really talking about here? Well, the late Yitzhak Rabin once said that American support for Israel was, quote, beyond compare in modern history, and he was right. It's the largest recipient of American economic and military aid. It works out to about $500 per year for each Israeli citizen. Even though Israel is no longer a poor country, its per capita income is 29th in the world now. It's not a poor country like Bangladesh, for example. And, of course, Israel gets this assistance even when it does things that the United States formally opposes, like building settlements in the West Bank. Israel gets consistent diplomatic support from the United States in the U.N., we almost always take its side in regional disputes, and it's rarely, if ever, criticized by American officials, and certainly not by anyone who wants to be elected to high office. You just have to look at the current presidential campaign in the United States, where every major candidate seems to be competing to show how personally devoted he or she is to Israel. The question is why? Now, the usual answer is that Israel is a vital strategic asset for America and a country that shares our values, a fellow democracy. But if you look at these two rationales objectively, they can't explain why we give so much help and why we give it so unconditionally. Israel may have been a strategic asset during the Cold War, but the Cold War is now over. 
Today, giving Israel nearly unconditional support is one of the reasons the United States has a terrorism problem, not the only one, but one of them. And it makes it harder for the United States to address a whole range of problems throughout the Middle East. Again, I want to be clear, our support for Israel is not the only source of anti-Americanism in the Middle East, and our problems there would not disappear if we had a more normal relationship with Israel. The United States also does benefit from some forms of strategic cooperation. But it's hard to argue that giving Israel unconditional support is making the United States more popular around the world or making American citizens safer back in the United States. On balance, unconditional support is a strategic liability for us. As for the claim that Israel is a democracy that shares our values, yes, it's a vibrant democracy, but of course, so are lots of other countries around the world, and none of them gets nearly the same level of support. Plus, Israel's treatment of its own Arab citizens, and certainly its treatment of its Palestinian subjects, is sharply at odds with basic Western democratic values and human rights principles. Nor is Israel's behavior substantially better than that of the Palestinians. I can't go into the details here due to reasons, for reasons of time, but any reasonably fair-minded look at the history of the region, including the more recent histories by various Israeli historians, shows that both sides of this conflict have done many cruel things to each other, and neither side owns the moral high ground here. And please note, I am not saying that Israel acts worse than other countries do, only that it hasn't acted substantially better. And you therefore cannot justify unconditional American support by arguing that its behavior is somehow exemplary. I also want to emphasize again, we think there is a strong moral case for Israel's existence based on the long history of anti-Semitism, and we believe the United States should help Israel if its survival is in jeopardy. Fortunately, its existence is not in jeopardy today, and past crimes against the Jewish people do not justify giving Israel a blank check now. So what explains its privileged position in the United States? In our view, it's the Israel lobby. The lobby is a loose coalition of individuals and groups that works openly, openly, to influence American policy in a pro-Israel direction. I'm thinking here of organizations like APAC, the Anti-Defamation League, Christians United for Israel, a Christian evangelical group, think tanks like the Washington Institute for Near East Policy, publications like the Weekly Standard or the New Republic. Now, that's a broad definition of an interest group. It goes beyond just lobbying, say, on Capitol Hill. But if you think about it, in the United States, most special interest groups have lots of different elements to them, lots of different components. The environmental movement isn't just Greenpeace and the Sierra Club. It also includes research organizations, sympathetic local chapters of these various groups, academics who work on environmental questions, journalists who write about it from a pro-environmental perspective. Again, just like the Israel lobby has different components to it. It is not a centralized organization, and the groups that comprise the lobby do not agree on every single issue, although they all agree on trying to preserve a special relationship between the United States and Israel. And again, just to repeat this, because it is so frequently mistaken by our critics, it is certainly not a cabal or conspiracy that controls American foreign policy. It's, again, just a powerful interest group like many others operating the same way that other interest groups do. Its actions, we like to say, are as American as apple pie. Two more quick points here. 
the lobby is not synonymous with Jewish Americans. Surveys suggest that about a quarter of Jewish Americans don't care very much one way or the other about Israel. Many others do not support the positions taken by the groups in the lobby, and some of the groups in the lobby that work on Israel's behalf, such as the so-called Christian Zionists, aren't Jewish at all. The lobby is defined by the political agenda it favors, not by ethnicity and not by religion. And finally, it doesn't include anyone who happens to have a favorable attitude towards Israel. You have to be actively working to try and move American policy in a pro-Israel direction. Some groups, some individuals are obviously more active and more influential than others. So how does it work? Well, there are two main ways. In the United States, small groups who care a lot about a particular issue often wield disproportionate influence because they care a lot about that one issue and politicians know they can get their support without losing anybody else's. Think of the farm lobby in the United States, which is a small number of people, but very influential. Like other interest groups, the Israel lobby works, again, in two main ways. First, it operates in Washington, inside the Beltway, and in the American political system to get sympathetic individuals elected to office, appointed to key positions in the government, and giving politicians a very clear incentive to follow the policies that groups in the lobby favor. Organizations like APAC work round the clock to convince politicians to support their agenda. This is an organization, by the way, with an annual budget of about $50 million. It's very active on Capitol Hill, helping draft legislation, providing talking points for congressmen, writing letters for them to sign, meeting with them frequently to explain their positions. It's a highly professional, highly effective organization with a very energetic grassroots base of supporters as well. Uh, APAC, however, is not a political action committee. It's forbidden by American law from giving money directly to politicians. What APAC does, however, is vet politicians who want to run for office, interviewing them, asking them to write position papers, and then helping steer campaign contributions from a whole network of pro-Israel political action committees there are about 35 or 36 of these committees set up around the country, and over the last 15 years, pro-Israel political action committees have given about $55 million to congressional and presidential candidates. That's, by the way, not counting individual contributions. That's just the PAC money. Uh, by comparison, Arab-American political action committees, of which there are a handful, gave about $800,000 over that same period, so $55 million to 800,000. Over the past 30 years, APAC and other organizations have helped drive a number of prominent politicians from office when they took positions APAC didn't like. And now every congressman or presidential candidate knows that they are playing with fire if they take a position contrary to what APAC wants, and certainly if they take a position that suggests any serious criticism of American support for Israel. That's why Steve Rosen, the former APAC official who is now under indictment for passing classified information, once put a napkin in front of a reporter from the New Yorker magazine and said, in 24 hours, we could have the signatures of 70 senators on this napkin. APAC was ranked the second most powerful lobby in Washington in a 2003 survey in the National Journal, and it also ranked second in an earlier survey in 1997 by Fortune magazine. Bill Clinton said APAC was, quote,
better than anyone else lobbying in this town. And Newt Gingrich, who didn't agree with Clinton on very much, called it the most effective general interest group across the entire planet. Former Congressman Lee Hamilton, who served in Congress for 34 years, said, there's no group that matches it. They're in a class by themselves. And former Senator Fritz Hollings said, upon his retirement, leaving office, you can't have an Israel policy other than what AIPAC gives you around here. That's why Israeli Prime Minister Ehud Olmert said about a year ago, thank God we have AIPAC, the greatest supporter and friend we have in the whole world. It makes you wonder why our article and our book was seen as controversial, given that we were just saying what everybody already knew. We just were saying it out loud, but of course a few other people, very mainstream people, had also said this. I want to remind you again, it's not just AIPAC but it's also a number of other groups, including a subset of the Christian evangelical movement. That's one big strategy, playing politics in Washington. The second strategy is to try and shape public discourse in the United States so that Israel is viewed favorably by most Americans. Mainstream media in the United States tends to be very pro-Israel, and compared with either Europe or Israel, there's a much narrower range of views in mainstream publications and broadcasts. If you look at columnists in the United States, for example, there's no equivalent of a Robert Fisk or a Patrick Seal who write here in the United Kingdom. There's no equivalent of Akiva Elder, Bradley Burston, Gideon Levy, or Amira Haas who write in Israel. My point, by the way, is not to say that Fisk or Elder or Haas are always right and that pro-Israel pundits are always wrong. My point is that voices like theirs, like Fisk's and Elder's and Haas's, are largely absent from the regular columns in any American mainstream newspaper. But even so, watchdog groups like the Anti-Defamation League or the Committee for Accuracy on Middle East Reporting in America, CAMERA, monitor media coverage, organize boycotts and demonstrations against any news agency that publishes anything critical about Israel, Groups like Campus Watch monitor activities on campus, try to put pressure on universities to have a more pro-Israel uh, discourse. So when Jimmy Carter published his book, Palestine, Peace, Not Apartheid, a year or so ago, the ADL and camera took out ads in major newspapers, which included the publisher's phone number and invited readers to call in and protest publication of the book. More recently, a couple of months ago, the Jewish newspaper Forward reported that CNN was coming under what the Forward called unprecedented attack for its three-part series comparing Muslim, Christian, and Jewish fundamentalism. Moreover, the Forward also reported that the Conference of Presidents was urging its various member organizations to take up this issue with any companies that had bought advertising time on CNN. Of course, the purpose here is to deter CNN from broadcasting shows like that in the future by threatening their advertising base. Finally, efforts to stifle criticism often include smearing critics by accusing them of being anti-Semitic. Martin Peretz, the editor of The New Republic, wrote after Carter published his book that President Carter will go down in history as a Jew hater. Another critic, Deborah Lipstadt, the historian who had won a lawsuit against Holocaust denier David Irving 
wrote in the Washington Post that Carter's views were very similar to those of David Dukes, the former head of the Ku Klux Klan. Remember, this is Jimmy Carter, who probably did more for Israeli security and Arab-Israeli peace than any other American president. Needless to say, accusations of anti-Semitism have been a common charge leveled at us, even though there is not the slightest shred of evidence to support it. And if you read our book, you will find nothing even remotely anti-Semitic about it, anything remotely like the protocols of the elders of Zion to which we are occasionally compared. Smearing people, by the way, is done for three reasons. First of all, it distracts people from the real issue, which is American policy in the Middle East. You end up spending all of your time defending yourself against bogus charges. Second, it deters people from voicing any criticisms at all, because who wants to be accused of being anti-Semitic? And finally, it marginalizes people in the public arena. Would any politician want to associate with someone who had been charged, even falsely, with being an anti-Semite? And that's, of course, why anyone who wants an important foreign policy job in Washington knows that saying anything critical of Israel is dangerous because it can derail your career. The bottom line here is on this one issue, there's very little serious debate in Washington, especially in Congress, but really within the foreign policy mainstream, even at a moment in history when it's obvious to everybody on the planet that American Middle East policy has gone badly off the rails. And yet one aspect of that policy almost never gets talked about. I want to make one final point, and then I will turn this over to John. I may have exceeded my 15 minutes. It is often said that the United States backs Israel because there is broad public support, that politicians are just doing what the American people want them to do, and groups like AIPAC are really irrelevant. Policy would be exactly the same if none of these groups existed. This argument is not convincing. It's true, Americans do have a generally favorable image of Israel, in part, begin because media coverage tends to be favorable, but they do not think the United States should be giving Israel unconditional or one-sided support. A survey conducted for the Anti-Defamation League in 2005 found that 78% of Americans think the United States should favor neither side in the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Another survey, uh, reported by Americans for Peace Now, found that 87% of Jewish Americans favor a two-state solution. A poll by the University of Maryland in 2003 that found that 70% of politically active Americans supported cutting aid to Israel if it refused to settle the conflict. So again, while Americans do have a generally favorable image of Israel, they want it to exist, they want it to be secure, just as John and I do, they are not insisting that the United States back Israel no matter what. But of course, that's pretty much what American policy has been, and that gap between what the American people really want and what American policy is, is due primarily to the political influence of the various groups that make up the Israel lobby. All right, so the question now is, is the lobby's influence good or bad? That's the hard question, so I'm leaving it to John. Thank you very much. Steve has uh, defined the lobby and made the case that it has a powerful influence on U.S. Middle East policy. 
I'll take the analysis a step further and argue that its influence has been largely negative. In a nutshell, our argument is that the lobby, working with Israel itself, has pushed U.S. Middle East policy in ways that are not in the American national interest, and I might add, not in Israel's interest either. I'm going to focus on two cases tonight. First, the role that the lobby has played in the run-up to the Iraq War, and second, the influence of the lobby and of Israel on U.S. policy towards Iran. There are three other cases that we cover in the book that I'm not going to discuss tonight because of time constraints. Uh, the first of which is how American support for Israel's brutal policies against the Palestinians has helped fuel terrorism against the United States. Number two, American policy towards Syria. And number three, American policy during the Lebanon War in the summer of 2006. Let me start with Iraq. It is manifestly clear to most Americans, not to mention people here in Europe, that the Iraq War is one of the greatest strategic blunders in U.S. history. Our argument is that Israel, and especially the lobby, were two of the main driving forces behind the decision to invade Iraq. It is hard to imagine, we argue, that war happening in their absence. To start with Israel, it was the only country besides Kuwait where both the government and a majority of the population favored the war. The Israeli government, to include Prime Minister Sharon, pushed the Bush administration hard to make sure that it did not lose its nerve in the months before the invasion. Other influential Israelis, like former Prime Ministers Benjamin Netanyahu and Ehud Barak, also pushed the United States to take down Saddam. In fact, Israel was pushing so hard for the war that its allies in the United States warned Israeli officials to damp down their rhetoric, lest it be seen as a war for Israel. I might add that former President Clinton said in 2006 that every Israeli politician I knew thought that Saddam was so great a threat that he should be removed even if he did not have WMD. The Israeli public was also solidly behind the war. According to a poll that was taken in February 2003, that is one month before the war started, 77.5% of Israelis said that they wanted the United States to attack Iraq. One sometimes hears the argument, as I'm sure many of you have, that Israel opposed the Iraq war and actually favored attacking Iran instead. There is no question that in early 2002, when the Israelis first got wind that the Bush administration was thinking about attacking Iraq, key Israeli officials went to Washington and made it clear that they thought Iran was the greater enemy and that the Bush administration should focus on Tehran, not on Baghdad. It is important to emphasize, however, that Israel was not opposed to the United States toppling the regimes in either Iraq or Syria, two countries that Jerusalem considers mortal enemies. 
Israel simply wanted the United States to deal with Iran first. But once the Israelis realized that the war party intended to deal with Iran after it finished the job in Iraq, it enthusiastically embraced the idea of invading Iraq. Thus, between early 2002 and March 2003, the Israelis put significant pressure on the Bush administration to make sure that it chose war over diplomacy while reminding Washington not to forget that Iran must come after Iraq. I might add that there is no evidence that Israel warned the United States that Iraq would turn into a quagmire. Indeed, the Israelis thought that Iraq would be a cakewalk, which is why they were confident that the United States would be free to go after Iran once it was finished with Iraq. Of course, they were wrong. Turning now to the lobby, there's no question that the neoconservatives, one of the core constituencies in the lobby, were the main driving force behind the war. But they were supported by the key organizations in the lobby, like APEC. Now that the war has gone south, it is common to hear Israel's supporters say that the main organizations of the lobby did not push for war. But that is not true. This point is made clear in a May 2004 editorial that appeared in the Forward, which is a weekly Jewish newspaper published in New York City. I'm going to read to you from the Forward's editorial. As President Bush attempted to sell the war in Iraq, America's most important Jewish organizations rallied as one to his defense. In statement after statement, community leaders stressed the need to rid the world of Saddam Hussein and his weapons of mass destruction. Concern for Israel's safety rightfully factored in to the deliberations of the main Jewish groups. End of quotes. Again, that's a comment from the forward. One sometimes hears the claim that APEC took no position on the Iraq war and certainly did not advocate it. This is not true either. First of all, this claim fails the common sense test as APEC usually supports what Israel wants and Israel wanted a war against Iraq. Second, there is hard evidence that APEC lobbied for the war. Just to give you one example, APEC's executive director, Howard Kaur, told the New York Sun in January 2003 that one of APEC's successes over the past year was, quote, quietly lobbying Congress to approve the use of force in Iraq, end of quote. The neoconservatives, of course, were the main driving force behind the war. They initiated the idea of using force to topple Saddam Hussein in two letters written to President Clinton in early 1998. Over the next five years, and especially after 9-11, they pushed relentlessly for a war against Iraq. No other group or institution in the United States was seriously committed to invading Iraq over that five-year period. 
Indeed, there was significant opposition to invading Iraq, even after 9-11, within the State Department, the intelligence community, and the uniformed military. I might add that there is hardly any evidence, hardly any evidence, that the oil companies or the oil-producing states were pushing for war with Iraq. The neoconservatives are, by their own admission, deeply committed to Israel. In fact, many of them are connected with key organizations in the lobby, like the American Enterprise Institute and the Washington Institute for Near East Policy. Our argument here, it should be emphasized, is not that the neoconservatives or the leaders of the lobby were pushing a war that was in Israel's national interest, but not in the national interest of the United States. On the contrary, they believed that invading Iraq was in both the American and Israeli national interests. For the neoconservatives, what is good for Israel is good for the United States and vice versa. Although the neoconservatives were deeply committed to a war with Iraq, they could not make it happen by themselves. They failed to convince President Clinton to go to Baghdad, and they had little luck selling the war in the first eight months of the Bush administration. It was the events of 9-11 that created the circumstances where they could help convince both President Bush and Vice President Cheney that invading Iraq was a smart idea. But without Bush and Cheney on board, there would not have been a war. And I might add that Steve and I also have argued on a number of occasions that we believe that if Al Gore had been elected president, there would not have been a war. All of this is to say that the neoconservatives were necessary to have the war, but by themselves, they could not make it happen. One final point is an order about Iraq. We're sometimes accused of making the argument that Iraq was a Jewish war. Nothing could be further from the truth. We point out in the book, and we pointed out in the original article, that polls taken before the war show that American Jews were 10% less supportive of the war than the general American public. Our argument is that the war was due in large part to the influence of the Israel lobby, especially the neoconservatives within it, not the American Jewish community. And as Steve emphasized, the lobby is defined by its political agenda, not by ethnicity or religion. Let me turn to Iran and make a few brief comments. There is no question that the United States and Iran have had difficult, if not terrible, relations since 1979. Nevertheless, the Iranians have made a number of attempts over the past 15 years to improve relations with the United States. For example, Iran helped the American military topple the Taliban in the fall of 2001 and then helped the Bush administration install the Karzai regime in Afghanistan. And then in May 2003, Iran put forth a proposal to negotiate on its nuclear program, its support for Hamas and Hezbollah, and possible recognition of Israel. The lobby, 
and Israel itself, however, resisted these efforts to improve U.S.-Iranian relations and pushed both the Clinton administration and the Bush administration to continue pursuing confrontational policies vis-a-vis Iran. For example, by imposing economic sanctions on Iran. Today, the Bush administration is considering using military force against Iran, despite the fact that it is widely believed in the United States, not to mention outside of it, that launching a preventive war against Iran would be a colossal strategic blunder. There is no question the United States, as well as every country in Europe and in the Middle East, has good reasons to discourage Iran from acquiring nuclear weapons. Neither Steve nor I deny that. But a nuclear-armed Iran, like an India or Pakistan with nuclear weapons, is not a direct threat to America. A nuclear Iran is mainly a threat to Israel, although not as great a threat as many Israelis and their supporters around the world believe. President Bush actually made this point clear in a comment he made in Cleveland in March 2006. The threat from Iran, he said, is their stated objective to destroy our strong ally Israel. He did not say the threat from Iran is the threat to destroy the United States. Of course, the main reason that the United States has its gun sights on Iran is pressure from Israel and the lobby. Israel is the only country in the world that is advocating the military option for Iran. And inside the United States, pro-Israel individuals like Norman Podhoretz and William Crystal and pro-Israel organizations like AIPAC have been leading the charge for war against Iran, just as they did in the run-up to the Iraq War. And as was the case with Iraq, there is little enthusiasm and much opposition to attacking Iran within the State Department, within the intelligence community, and within the uniform military. Indeed, there have been newspaper stories in recent months saying that key American military leaders are firmly opposed to picking a fight with Iran. The bottom line is straightforward. If Israel and the lobby were not pressing this case, there would be little serious discussion inside or outside Washington about attacking Iran. Let me conclude with a brief word about what we think the United States-Israeli relationship should look like. To start, the United States should end its special relationship with Israel and treat it like a normal country. The United States should treat Israel the same way that it treats Britain, France, Italy, Germany, and India. In practice, this means that when Israel is acting in ways that are in the American national interest, Washington should back the Jewish state. But when Israel is acting in ways that harm U.S. interests, Washington should distance itself from Israel and use its considerable leverage to get Israel to change its behavior, just as it would do with any other state that was acting in ways that might hurt the United States. 
regarding Israel's conflict with the Palestinians, the United States should act as an honest broker. In other words, Washington should pursue an even-handed policy towards the two sides. In particular, the United States should make it clear to Israel that it must abandon the occupied territories and allow for the creation of a viable Palestinian state. Jerusalem should be told that the United States will oppose, not tolerate, Israel's colonial expansion in the West Bank. None of this is to say that the United States should abandon Israel. On the contrary, the United States should defend Israel's right to exist within its pre-1967 borders with some minor modifications. And most importantly, if Israel's survival is threatened, the United States should come to its aid. Thank you. Okay, thank you very much, John, and thanks, Steve. Uh, we're at 20 past seven. That does give us at least 25 minutes for questions and answers. If you could make your questions uh, brief and to the point, uh, I would appreciate it, and so would everybody else. So please, no long speeches. Uh, I can make those, you can't. Okay, fine. Right, let's begin. A uh, gentleman here with his hand up, please. Yeah, that's you. Uh, where's the microphone? You'll get a microphone. Have you got a loud voice? Thanks very much. Uh, professors, can I uh, tell you what um, George P. Schultz said? He's not a great friend of Israel. He said the following. We are a great nation and our government officials invariably include brilliant, experienced, tough-minded people. Mostly we make good decisions, but when we make a wrong decision, even one that's recommended by Israel and supported by American Jewish groups, it is our decision and one for which we alone are responsible. We are not babes in the woods, easily convinced to support Israel's or any other state's agenda. We act in our own interests. In the face of such evidence, how on earth can you claim seriously that America supports Israel only because the pro-Israel lobby forces it to do so? Right, well, we couldn't have George P. Schultz, but we got the quote. Uh, do you want to pick that one up? I'd be happy to answer that one. Uh, that's, I believe, a relatively recent statement by former Secretary Schultz. I would invite everyone to go look at his memoirs. And I forget the page number. I, somehow I want to say it's like page 112 in his memoirs, uh, which I believe is called you know, Triumph and Tragedy, Turmoil and Tragedy, something like that. Uh, look at his memoirs, and he's talking shortly after he became Secretary of State in the midst of the Lebanon War. And he writes, and I'll get this quotation almost exact, but I won't get it exact. He writes something, in December, uh, we heard, President Reagan and I learned that a supplemental military aid package had been proposed in Congress for $250 million. This in the wake of Israel's invasion of Lebanon, its use of cluster bombs and the Sabra and Shatila massacres. We fought the resolution and fought it hard. President Reagan and I weighed in personally, making calls to congressmen. The resolution sailed past us as though President Reagan and I weren't even there. This brought home to me vividly Israel's leverage on our Congress, and I realized from then on I would have to cooperate with the Israelis in order to have any influence in shaping our policy in the Middle East. That's what he wrote in his memoirs. That's what I believe he truly believes. 
gentleman here. Yeah, just um, two quick questions. One of them on your premise that Israel is privileged, and you described it in terms of support of money, supporting the UN, and citing regional disputes. If we looked at it from a different prism, for example, establishing American bases or going to war on behalf of countries, then perhaps Israel wouldn't emerge as such a privileged country as a country as you two suggest. I mean, in the Middle East, for example, probably Kuwait and Saudi Arabia would come out on top and Israel somewhere um, in the bottom. The second thing which I wanted to ask is that um, on the description of the run-up to Iraq, um, it seems to me that you've sort of reduced the decision to the role of the Israeli lobby, where I would argue that the Israeli lobby certainly supported, but they were joining the fray, basically. And the fray included demonization of Arab um, Americans in the United States, a very strong lobby from economic financial um, groups as well. And I could mention other groups, um, but I think you perhaps slightly overemphasize the capacity of the Israeli lobby to actually grab the agenda and underemphasize actually the context and atmosphere that existed before the run-up to Iraq. So you're a little bit doing it in, in hindsight of giving us All right, that's good. Um, John? You've got a great team worked out here. We know this. John, over to you. First of all, you have, on your first question, uh, there's no doubt that we do not have strategic bases in Israel uh, and that we cannot use Israel to help us fight wars. Uh, and all of that is to say that Israel is not a strategic asset for the United States. But there's no question that when you look at all the largesse that we give to Israel and you look at the diplomatic support that we give it in the United Nations and when you realize that we give this aid unconditionally, in other words, no matter what Israel does, it always gets the aid, it's hard to find uh, a similar case uh, in the history books. And what's remarkable about this, to tie the two points together, is that it's very hard to make the argument, especially after the end of the Cold War, that Israel is a strategic asset, yet at the same time we're giving it all this aid and giving it unconditionally. Uh, with regard to your argument about the run-up to the Iraq War, uh, there's little evidence that uh, the oil companies or the oil-producing states, except for Kuwait, uh, were in favor of this war. When you look carefully at who was actually pushing the war in the United States, it's hard to find many actors outside of the neoconservatives uh, and the leaders of the lobby themselves. Uh, as I said before, the State Department was not in favor of the war. The intelligence community was not in favor of the war. The uniform military was not in favor of the war. There's no evidence that the oil-producing states were pushing the war. There's no evidence that the oil companies were pushing the war. Right? But you see lots of evidence, as I laid out up here, and there's even more evidence in the book for any of you who doubt what I had to say, that the lobby and the neoconservatives within the lobby we're pushing it very hard. I think there's no question that the leaders of the major organizations of the lobby, groups like APEC, uh, came in after the neoconservatives. There's no doubt that the neoconservatives generated the idea, as I said, of toppling Saddam with military force in early 1998. And they didn't have much help from the leaders of the lobby until after 9-11. But nevertheless, after 9-11, the Israelis themselves and the leaders of the lobby came in and pushed hard for the war. Okay, I've got a question over here. We're going to go up to the balcony now. Take questions down here. Okay. Yeah, please, Mary. Mary Keller. Mary? Um, well, I find your argument utterly convincing, but I have two further questions. One is, what explains the Israel lobby? 
you yourself said it wasn't actually in the Israeli interest or the American interest. Neither the Iraq war nor the confrontation with Iran is actually in Israel's interest. So how did this peculiar phenomenon come about? And the second question is, you said we should treat Israel like a normal state. But is Israel a normal state? Could Israel survive without the current level of aid that the United States provides? Okay, thanks, Mark. Uh, yeah, I'll, I'll take the first one. I think John will take the second one. Uh, as, I tried to, as I tried to indicate, uh, the, the influence of the lobby is a reflection, basically, of the way American politics works and the way interest groups uh, work in the United States. And you have a subset of American citizens who care very deeply about Israel, some of them Jewish, some of them not, uh, the so-called Christian evangelicals. And the way the American political system is organized, small groups of people can have very profound impact on policy. I alluded to a couple of other examples to just suggest it. Most people in the United States who look every year at our farm bill understand that the farm bill is an idiotic piece of public policy. It's a giant subsidy program for uh, agribusiness, uh, even though farmers are a very small part of the uh, population. It's not a smart policy, but it happens. Now, your question, though, is really why is the Israel lobby pushing policies that are not good for the United States and not good for Israel? To make just two quick points, there's some heterogeneity within uh, the lobby, but as we describe in the book, the most powerful and influential organizations within it have over time become more and more heavily controlled by hardliners who have a particular view of the world, many of them uh, not very excited about the idea of a two-state solution, many of them committed to the idea of a greater Israel, and they've become more influential over time and pushed that agenda much more uh, strongly. And, of course, the emergence of the neoconservative movement with their ideas not only about Middle East politics, but also about the general use of American power to reshape the world in various ways have become more dominant. And this simply is a case where an influential interest group has been pushing a bunch of policies that, in our view, are terribly wrong-headed, not because they're evil people, but they have a bad set of things they're pushing, much the same way I would argue the National Rifle Association in the United States has pushed a, an absence of gun control policy on the United States that doesn't make a whole lot of sense either. The fact is, influential elites in all countries sometimes push really boneheaded policies and sometimes succeed in getting those things adopted, as they've done with respect to Israel, as they did certainly with respect to the Iraq War. With regard to your second question, I think that Israel is a normal country. Uh, it occasionally does smart things. It occasionally does stupid things. It behaves pretty much like all states in the international system. I think for many American Jews, uh, and for many Christian evangelicals, Israel is not a normal state uh, for different reasons in both cases. And that's one of the principal reasons, I think, that it is so difficult to talk about Israel because so many people think it's something special. The argument that Steve and I are making is that it's not something special. It's just another state that does stupid things from time to time, just like the United States. We criticize our own government all the time. As Mick can tell you, I was here a few years ago to lecture about America's foolish policy in Iraq. You're free to criticize the United States. Why shouldn't you be free to criticize Israel? The second point I would make... So, 
the second point I would make on this is what's not normal is the relationship that we have with Israel. And our argument is that we should have a normal relationship with Israel, which is not to say we should be antagonistic to Israel, as I spelled out at the end of my talk. What we're saying is that when Israel acts in America's interest, we should support Israel. And when it doesn't, we should distance ourselves and use our significant leverage to get them to change their behavior, like use pressure to get them out of the occupied territories. And our argument is that that would be good for the United States and that would be good for Israel. Now, you can disagree with us and we can have a debate about it, but let's have that debate. Final point. Could, the final point. Could Israel survive without American aid? The answer is absolutely yes. Israel got very little aid from the United States until 1967 and really didn't get huge amounts of aid until after, 19, until after 1973. And as you all know, Israel won stunning victories in 1948, 1956, 1967, and 1973 after getting caught with their pants down in one of the great surprise attacks of all time. The Israeli military is a very formidable fighting force with or without American aid. Can I add just one quick point to that? The other, very, just on one point, John made, the other our central argument also is that the United States would in fact be a better friend to Israel if we had a more open discussion in the United States and if we could be more openly critical. Because as you all know, sometimes when you see a friend of yours doing something you think is wrong or ill-advised, the smart thing to do is tell them that and use your influence to try and get them to stop. And the problem, that's the way we expect American allies to treat us, tell us when we're going off the cliff. And we should be able to do the same thing with the countries that we have regard for as well. It seems kind of straightforward to us, but not to everyone. There you go. Right, in the middle. And then the lady here. Yeah, please, sir. Use the mic, yeah. Uh, I have a question for Professor Mizheimer. Uh, you said that... Uh, uh, Iran is not a threat to the United States, but uh, this is a country that's developing a nuclear weapon that's been an avowed enemy of the United States since 1979 that has recently said that it wants to wipe, the president has said that it wants to wipe uh, Israel off the face of the map. Uh, it's possible to put forward arguments that he doesn't necessarily control the power structure in Iran, but do you want to take... Uh, that risk, and is the is the U.S. being a superpower? Uh, is it is it not in the U.S.'s interest to uh, prevent a country like that from developing nuclear weapons? Uh, that's my question. I'll, I'll take a second question there too, please. Yeah, I'll, I'll take the two together, there, please. Uh, yes, you were mentioning a debate, and I'm very keen on actually raising some debate. The money you mentioned goes to Israel every year for each citizen, actually end up arriving at least, I suspect, 90% back to the United States. And that raises my question. Maybe the, US, the Israel actually presents a U.S. interest and not vice versa. Another subject I wanted to mention is you re refer to Israel as a regular country. I can't think of many other countries that were actually in war and being bombarded over a few months because of a U.S. policy. I'm referring to Gulf War One, uh, which affected a lot of Israelis uh, in their life, and there was a lot of in inner Israeli criticism against Israel not responding the way it's supposed to be the way it's supposed to respond, uh, regardless of the United States' uh, hope from the way Israel would conduct itself. The last thing I want to mention about that is that uh, you talk about a nuclear threat. 
It's very easy to submit that and to say to treat Israel as any other country, but there is not many other countries when there is a country like Iran that in its constitution actually wants that, um, that Israel to stop to exist. It's a very emotional topic for me. That's the reason I'm a bit uh, on, the, on that side. And that last thing I want to raise, an Iranian friend of mine who studied in LSC was accepted here. We became very good friends. I'm from Israel. And he told me that when he was accepted, the LSE called him and asked him, would he mind sitting next to an Israeli in class? I suspect that in the world we live in, unfortunately, there is still enough of anti-Semitism and anti-Jewish feelings which should maybe not make the U.S. such a bad thing in actually supporting a nation's rights to exist. Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, who can go yeah, I, I, I'll take the, the, the gentleman's question on Iran. Uh, I tried to make it clear that I believe that the United States, all of the countries in Europe and in the Middle East, have a vested interest in preventing Iran from acquiring nuclear weapons. I'm very clear on that. The argument that I would make in great detail if I had the time was that using military force to prevent Iran from acquiring nuclear weapons is a bad idea. It's going to backfire. Uh, you're not going to eliminate the capability over time, uh, and the consequences uh, for future stability are going to be negative. Uh, regarding the question of whether or not Iran is a threat to the United States, the rhetoric I used was it's not a direct threat to the United States, and I believe that it's true that even if Iran had nuclear weapons, it would not be a direct threat to the United States. Uh, the gentleman said that Iran is in the process of developing nuclear weapons. It is not clear that Iran is in the process of developing nuclear weapons. It may be, or it may decide to do that somewhere down the road, but it is said at this point in time that it is interested in acquiring the full nuclear fuel cycle, and I don't see much evidence uh, that it has decided to go beyond that. Uh, the argument that, enemy, that Iran is an enemy of the United States, that's basically correct. But as I've pointed out, and we talk at great length about this in the book, the Iranians have on a number of occasions since the early 1990s gone out of their way to affect some sort of rapprochement with the United States. Iran is no longer interested in being on the axis of evil. It's the United States that won't play along with Iran's efforts to fashion some sort of cooperative arrangement. And it's largely because of the power of the lobby inside the United States, as we document. And finally, the argument that uh, uh, Ahmadinejad said that he was going to uh, wipe Israel off the map, uh, and of course the implication is that he's going to use nuclear weapons to do that. He never said any such thing, as has been heavily documented. As has been heavily documented, he said that he would like to see Israel vanish from the page of time. Uh, I find that view reprehensible. Uh, would you, would you, I'll, I'll explain exactly what that. Okay. Yes. Okay. Uh, and then, I, then I'll answer her, her question. Uh, this you can't answer two questions. You've done one. You, you no, it was, one. All right. I got a lot of hands out there. Right. Right. The, 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 uh, the phrase vanish from the pace of time was an allusion to a speech that the Ayatollah Khomeini had made. It's a statement that the political regime of Israel should go out of existence the same way that. Please, come on. Guys, come on. Please, if you'd like me to answer the question, please yeah, don't please. interrupt me. 
Okay, come on, Chad. Come on. You haven't let me finish my answer, sir. This was a statement that the political regime should end, right, the same way that, say, the Soviet Union came to an end or the same way the Shah's regime came to an end, but not calling for the physical destruction and the murder of all of Israel's citizens. I find his... I find, I find his remark deeply objectionable. I'm not defending it, but the idea that he's claiming that we're going to get nuclear weapons and then fire them at Jerusalem or fire them at Tel Aviv, I think does not follow from what he said. I'm not defending what he said. I am clarifying what he said. Now, the rest of your question. Yes, we give them 3 to $4 billion a year, and some of that money does come back to the United States, but frankly, we can use it for many more useful things than giving it to Israel so that Israel can buy American weapons. So we can save the money. We can use it on all sorts of things we could use in the United States. I don't think that argument holds water. You're absolutely right. The United, uh, Israel was attacked during the first Gulf War by Iraq, uh, and the United States, of course, did its best to protect Israel, which I think was exactly the right thing for the United States to do in that context. But it underscores the fact that Israel was not a strategic asset. We were diverting military assets to help protect Israel. And for political reasons, Israel couldn't fight in the Gulf War. Not that they didn't want to. You've had, come on. Come on we've, we've I, 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 as I was just saying, ma'am, Israel may have wanted to fight, but as a practical matter, they couldn't because the coalition would have fallen apart, which, again, is part of the problem. And finally, yes, if I were Israel, I would worry about the Iranian nuclear arsenal as well. Let's not forget, of course, that Israel has a quite sizable nuclear arsenal of its own. And I, I, do, not, I do not believe the Iranian regime is suicidal. You will recall that the Soviet Union was led by brutal mass murderers with great contempt for human life. They had thousands, if not tens of thousands, of nuclear weapons. They never tried to blackmail anybody with them. They never used them against anyone. And I believe a nuclear Iran would not be a good thing, but I do not believe they would use those weapons to attack Israel because that would be committing national suicide. Okay. Okay, all right. I can feel the temperature rising here. <laughs> Toby Dodge will uh, lower the temperature and... Uh, Old friend from Queen Mary. Toby, over to you. No, well, well let, let me try and lower the temperature a bit. Uh, am I right in detecting uh, a change in argument from the original article? And it, my reading of your original article was that you were, you were blaming or at least putting some of the blame for the decision to invade Iraq on the Israel lobby. From your statement now, you're saying the decision was taken by the neoconservatives and once that decision was taken, the Israeli lobby then backed it, which is quite a shift, I think. And I would agree with you, actually, because uh, the, no. it, 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 on your common sense, art, um, common sense argument, Iraq posed no threat whatsoever to Israel with a broken arm and a broken state. So clearly, under that argument, Iran would be a more present danger. Thank you. Okay, take that one quick, yeah. John. I've got yeah. some other questions. There's no change there. in our argument. Our argument is that the neoconservatives are part of the lobby. And I was not talking about the neoconservatives versus the lobby. I was talking about the neoconservatives versus the leaders of the major organizations in the lobby like APEC. Everybody has other interests. I'm not arguing that these people are monomaniacal regarding Israel. The fact is that the neoconservatives and the leaders of the lobby are deeply committed to Israel, and there is nothing wrong with that in the American context. Okay, right. I've got a gentleman here, and then I'm going to go upstairs and then come down again. Yeah, please, sir. 
Thank you very much for coming. I've actually read your article and I'm about halfway through your book, uh, but thank you for clarifying uh, some of the book uh, today. My did you buy the book? I did buy the book, yeah. <laughs> Good. So, you're, so you're welcome. Now, uh, thank you. I get a free copy. There you go. Okay, we've clarified the point. That's the question. Now, a few times you've mentioned that uh, the U.S., uh, I guess, as a victim of terrorism, is partly in response to its policies vis-à-vis Israel um, and the Israeli lobby. I'm wondering if uh, you think that the terrorism problem faced by countries such as Spain, Russia, Australia, Germany, and even Great Britain are also a response to those countries' policies towards Israel and their local Israeli lobbies. Uh, Yeah, that's an excellent question. it's very important to emphasize that we argued that American support for Israel's brutal policies towards the Palestinians is only one of the causes of America's terrorism problem. By the way, it is a major cause, and if you have any doubts about that, you can read our discussion of the 9-11 Commission Report's findings regarding uh, Khalid Sheikh Mohammed and Osama bin Laden and Israel. So it was a major cause of why the United States was hit, but it was not the only cause. And those other causes, by and large, applied to the Europeans as well as to the United States. For example, the war in Iraq is a cause of terrorism directed at both the United States and Israel. Uh, excuse me, the United States and Europe. And also, I also believe that in the European case, the, there are more issues involving integration or assimilation of Muslim populations within Europe, which has not been a particularly big problem in the United States, where the Arab American population and the Muslim population has not had the same set of problems assimilating for a whole complicated set of historical reasons. Okay, I've got a couple of questions coming from upstairs. Where's the person with the mic, please? Yeah, and then yeah. somebody over here, yeah. Um, you previously mentioned that probably the U.S. could do something better with 3 or $4 billion a year that are provided as military and other aid to Israel. And it makes me wonder if you underemphasize the uh, influence of uh, the so-called military-industrial complex of uh, weapons manufacturers on uh, U.S. foreign policy, um, and basically thinking about evidence as a considerable U.S. leverage that was exercised on Israeli foreign policy in Israeli weapon trading with partners such as China and India in the past, where uh, the U.S., despite the Israel lobby, was very successful in blocking the Israeli interest in selling weapons. Um, don't, you, don't you see, the again, the um, influence of the military-industrial complex uh, being the fueling uh, force behi- behind uh, the influence of the Israeli lobby. I'll take a couple more. Yeah, who's, got, who's got a mic up there? Yeah. Yes, hello. hello. Yes, um, my name is Abe Hayim. Uh, from <clears throat> I belong to Independent Jewish Voices and also Architects and Planners for Justice in Palestine. Uh, what was very interesting about your book, which I th- think was such a measured, sensible you know, really well written, almost in parts, almost dull, because. <laughs> I, I, I thought you were his publisher until you said that. <laughs> but still, still an excellent. I mean, it really encapsulates a very, very uh, a, a, a subject that actually has been written about very much over the last few years, but has really encapsulated it in a very measured. You know, beautifully kind of... Um. Okay, that's enough. That's enough. Let him try. Right. No, 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 no. It's your brother. Okay, now... 
What's the question? Well, the question is, uh, towards, I think the end, uh, the, the last bit in the book is how you counter the Israel lobby because the Israel lobby actually exists. It, you know, it is very broadly and, and uh, uh, you know, proudly spoken of, you know, by the lobby, both in the States and here. <coughs> and you actually suggest ways and means, you know, to counter the lobby. Now, what uh, uh, we're talking about, the UK here has a very strong lobby. And what actually can you do when the government of a country is actually very strongly part of that lobby? I mean, the British government, both Blair and... Um, now, uh, Gordon Brown are very strong supporters. You know, they, they go to all these um, dinners at the Board of Deputies and yeah, say yeah, yeah. the long-term, you know, they're long-term supporters, etc. What, what can you do when you actually have governments who are very strongly part of the lobby and because of that have done nothing, nothing whatsoever substantial to change the situation in the Middle East? Right, okay. Good. So two questions there, John. What about the military-industrial complex, and is your book wonderful? <laughs> Steve will take the first, I'll take the second. You'll take the second, yes, yeah, Steve. Be being called dull is the nicest thing we've heard in a while. Yeah. Um, with respect to the question about the military-industrial complex, I'd say a couple of things. I, the military-industrial complex does have some impact on American foreign policy. There's no question, mostly on military affairs. But I would argue that if the military-industrial complex were really driving American Middle East policy, you'd see a rather different policy. Instead of supporting Israel, you'd see them opening the floodgates to sell as many weapons as they possibly could to the Arab world. We do that periodically, but not nearly as often uh, as people think, and maybe not as often as, say, Lockheed Martin would like. More importantly, the question that was raised about this issue of Israeli arms sales to China, I don't think that was something that was killed by the military-industrial complex in the United States. That was killed by people in the Pentagon who think that China is a potential strategic threat down the road, and they didn't want advanced technology going there. What's quite interesting about that episode, and we briefly discussed it in the book, is one of the people who was maddest about it was Doug Feith, who was about as pro-Israel an American official as you can imagine. But I don't think it was for military-industrial complex reasons. I think it was their sense of American strategic interests. Uh, with regard to the gentleman from Independent Jewish Voices, uh, one thing that strikes us or has struck us over the past 18 months is the extent to which people's representation of what we argue is completely at odds with what we said in the original article uh, and in the book itself. It's really quite stunning. Uh, we go to great lengths to say we're not saying X, Y, and Z, and especially in the United States, all sorts of critics say they are saying X, Y, and Z. And that's why I would suggest that anybody who hasn't read the book, please read it to see what we have to say. Even because the dull, even the dull it is a boring book. Even if you don't buy it. It is a boring book in many ways. Now, with regard to the very important question about what can be done about this problem, I would make two points. One is that I think it's very important. This applies more to the United States than it does to... Uh, to England, but I think, or to Britain, uh, I think in, in the case of the United States, uh, and it's even true over here and probably will be more true over time, is that it's very important to have an open discourse about this issue because the more people become aware of how foolish our policies are uh, and how foolish Israel's policies are, uh, the sooner we'll uh, 
change the policies, and that would be all for the good. So I'm in favor of open discourse. Second point I would make is that I think we need more organizations like independent Jewish voices. Uh, one of the real problems in the United States is that the lobby is dominated by very hawkish American Jews and very hawkish Christian Zionists, people like Reverend John Hagee, uh, Malcolm Honeline, uh, Abe Foxman, and so forth and so on. And, and what I think has to happen here is that uh, American Jews, and I think this is true of European Jews as well, have to start thinking about where this is all going to end up. Steve and I like to say there are basically four possible outcomes here. Uh, one is that Israel ends up expelling all the Palestinians from uh, Gaza and from the West Bank. Two is that you create a true democratic state uh, that includes all of Mandate Palestine, in which case that won't be a Jewish state because there'll be more Palestinians uh, than Jews. Uh, the third option is, what is the third option? Apartheid. Apartheid. Oh, yes, right. The third option is apartheid, uh, which is, in effect, where you're headed at the moment. Uh, and the fourth option is a two-state solution. And that's where the United States, and to a lesser extent the Europeans, put pressure on the Israelis uh, to abandon the occupied territories and create a viable Palestinian state. So for those of you who are watching this one unfold, it's becoming increasingly clear that you're not going to get a two-state solution. right? So then the question is, which of the other three options are you going to get? You think you're going to get expulsion? I don't think so. You think you're going to get a democratic state where the Palestinians outnumber the Jews? I do not think so. You think you're going to get an apartheid state? I think that's where you're headed. Do you think this is good for Israel? I don't think this is good for Israel. We, we like the two-state solution. We just because. Because, because the Israelis are not interested in a two-state solution at this point in time. Okay, okay. Okay, fine. A gentleman at the back, please. Yeah, you have to turn the mic on. It's called LSE Technologies. The best. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thanks. I'd like to ask the uh, the joint speakers if um, uh, the excellent advice uh, and the sane advice in, uh, contained in the book will in any way affect the uh, Bush administration and lower the probability of attacking Iran, perhaps with Israel. And, and then it's something that they just touched on. What are the chances of uh, a serious discussion of the two-state solution in Annapolis? Okay, there's one. I've got a question here. Yeah, I actually... Please. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. Uh, hi. I'm actually a master's in IR student here. And I have to say, after, after, this, after this discussion, I have to read this other dull book in addition to all the other dull books that we have to read. Hey, who are you calling dull, huh? Anyway, ask the question. Um, my question is, the first question I have is, there were two questions already asked in, um, in, that, right. um, in that regard, but I just want to uh, specify. The... Um, the defense industry in the States, uh, having actually been very related to the, um, the contracts and the financial aid that's been given to Israel, there have been propositions here that this is indeed the case, and you seem to have refuted that. Um, this idea I've heard circulated in terms of numbers around a lot, and I think it would be very helpful if 
you know, if there is, a, say, a question about whether this is an influence or not, to just throw out some numbers. To what percentage is this, to what extent does this money come back, or to what extent does it really get thrown out to Israel more? Because I suspect that in some cases, for example, the defensive industry might not be important. In other cases, you know, this extra push might help. Okay. And no, 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 that's it. That's your lot. I got 200 questions. Well, ask the question then. What's the well, question? my second question is... Oh, my goodness. I think one's enough. Sorry, you've asked one. You have one. And you have the privilege of being in the IR department of the LSE as well. There you go. Now, the gentleman up there, I've got lots of questions. To all my, to all my very zealous and agitated Israeli friends who can't sleep at night because of the uranium threat. May I remind you that the Islamic Republic of Iran is light years away from a civilian nuclear program. Secondly, have you ever considered the logical absurdity that the Islamic Republic might strike Israel, the heart of Israel, and kill millions of Arab Palestinians? Is that, has that ever been a consideration in this Iranian threat? And thirdly, the Islamic Republic of Iran will continue to fight to secure a binational Palestine in which Jews, Muslims and Christians can continue to live peacefully. Okay, thank you very much. I can say, Calum, well, the gentleman here at the back who's had his hand up for many years. Thank you very Sir, much. Sir, over to you. Please. But thank you very much. Jerry Lewis, and I have to declare an interest. I'm the London correspondent of Israel Radio. A very carefully constructed book, a very carefully constructed argument. But, gentlemen, there is a problem, a major fault line, the size of the Grand Canyon. Professor Walt, you say that Israel is not under threat. That was your basic presentation. Are you not, both of you, having a go at success? It is a very successful lobby. It does deliver. Nobody supports Israel right or wrong all the time. There are many critics of Israel, both within the Jewish community and without. The question I have is to both of you. Why are you part of a bandwagon trying to support those elements in the wider society who are trying to destabilize and delegitimize Israel? What is the aim of your what is the aim of your tour to this country? There is not the same problem in this country that you've highlighted in America. Why is it that you feel it is correct? to bring the policies of the United States to London. Okay. Okay, I, I, I got a few. Thank you very much for that question. Uh, who wants to do what? We'll, we'll, uh, we'll divide this up in some unpredictable fashion. Uh, I'll just tackle the first right, couple please. ones, and then, then John will weigh in, and I'll probably weigh in again. Uh, will our book have any impact on the Bush administration as a one-word answer? No. Uh, <laughs> I'm sorry to say. Uh, second, the question on, on defense spending, I, I'm not sure I fully understood the question. Um, but, yeah, yeah, well, let me put it this way. The, the, United, the United States gives Israel about $2 billion a year in military assistance, uh, and this is all grant money. It's all just a gift. Every other country in the world that gets American military assistance has to spend all of it in the United States. All of it, 100%. Israel, by a special clause in the law, gets to spend 25% of it in Israel. It's the only country that gets to spend part of the aid package in its own country to subsidize its own defense industry, which, of course, is a pretty good defense industry and exports a lot. Right. Anyway, so, so yes, it's true. Some of the money does come back, but Israel actually gets a better deal than all the other recipients of American military aid. And as I said, if, if Israel wants to you know, live on its own, we'll be happy to spend the money on roads and bridges and other things that we need in the United States. 
Um, I'm going to tackle it. You can tackle the third one, and I'll probably weigh in, too. Uh, just on the first question about where the Annapolis conference is going, first of all, it's not clear you're going to have it, and if you do have it, it's going to go nowhere. Uh, <laughs> second, uh, with regard to the gentleman from Israel Radio, uh, the idea that we're jumping on a bandwagon uh, to destabilize and de legitimize Israel is simply not true. You obviously read our book carefully, uh, given your excellent description of it. In nowhere, nowhere in that book do we talk about delegitimizing Israel. And in fact, we set up here very clearly that we're glad that there's a Jewish state. We think that the United States should be committed to the survival of that state and should come to its defense if its survival is threatened. That's not delegitimizing Israel. Israel is a normal country, as I said before. It sometimes has interests that coincide with America's interests, and it sometimes doesn't. And when it does, we should support the Jewish state, and when it doesn't, we shouldn't support the Jewish state. In fact, we should use our significant leverage to get it to change its behavior. That's not anti-Israel. That's the way the United States deals with every other country in the world. We're not interested in delegitimizing Israel. And it really just baffles me that people like you make the argument that we're saying X when we're not saying X. Uh, yeah, Steve. No, that's no, okay. Uh, you well, very quickly, the other, the, the, the other point I would make here is to just underscore a point we've made before. The United States would be a better ally if we had a different relationship. We had a more normal relationship. And I'll give you three examples. We would have been a better ally for Israel if we had pushed very hard to stop the settlements project before it ever really got started. As, as, many, as many Israelis will tell you, the whole idea of colonizing the West Bank was a terrible mistake. They should never have done it. And we did them no favors by not helping stop that. Second, the Lebanon War of summer 2006, Israel had every right to respond to Hezbollah, but they shouldn't have done the response that they chose, which wasn't going to defeat Hezbollah and, of course, was a violation of the laws of war, which discredited them in the eyes of much of the rest of the world. And again, many Israelis understand that the Lebanon campaign was a complete disaster. But what did the United States do? Instead of getting a quick ceasefire, which would have saved some Israeli lives, we backed the government to the hilt, even though it was doing a foolish policy. And the Congress voted 410 to 8 to support <coughs> Israel. This is not what a good friend does to an ally. Finally, if you agree with us about the Iraq war, to the extent that the Israel lobby played a role in getting us into Iraq, this was a disaster for Israel as well. Because who did it strengthen? Iran. Iran's position is much better today, and Israel now has a failed state in its neighborhood. This was not good for Israel. So we're not trying to delegitimize Israel. We're actually trying to have an American policy that would be better for America and better for Israel too. You might disagree with us, but that's our motivation. Okay. I, I, I noticed a lot of hands have gone up, and I've had one hand at the back for a very long time. And uh, would you please, this will have to be, I'm afraid, the last question, because we're getting after 8 o'clock. I'm terribly sorry. Uh, yes, uh, you suggest uh, constantly that the activities of the lo uh, lobby are legitimate. However, 
don't, doesn't your analysis lag a little bit in the following sense that um, it's not a lobby. A lobby means that you knock from the outside to have an influence on the inside and, uh, or you know, going to talk to your congressman and so forth. But we have passed that stage in the sense that uh, we're dealing with uh, planting of key people. You know, Condoleezza Rice used to be the, the protégé of uh, Stephen Rosen. And, uh, you know, sometimes, um, you know, what, 150 uh, congressional staffers being planted for free all over uh, Congress. Um, uh, so the, the idea that you have capture taking place uh, just by looking at the list of the people that work for the Washington uh, WINAP, or whatever the acronym is, um, uh, there's a revolving door of people. So once you have that type of thing, we, are you still claiming that is legitimate? Yes. Uh, it's very important to understand that interest group politics lie at the heart of the American political system. And interest group politics, which is another way of saying lobby politics, have been part of the warp and woof of daily political life in America since the country was founded in the 18th century. Uh, so if you look at gun control in the United States, what you see is that a small, well-organized, well-funded, smart organization called the National Rifle Association is very effective at thwarting any kind of meaningful gun control in the United States. Steve and I both happen to believe that is not in America's national interest. But the National Rifle Association, we would never argue, is doing something illegitimate. Nor would we argue that the farm lobby or the Armenian lobby, which many of you have surely been following recently as it affected legislation on the Turkish genocide in the Congress, is doing something illegitimate. One could argue that the Armenian lobby is doing something foolish, just like you could argue that the farm lobby or the NRA is doing something foolish. There's nothing unusual about this, right? It's been there in the American system from the beginning. Another dimension to America that you all know about is that we're an immigrant culture. So we constantly have, in, we, we constantly have these different ethnic groups sweeping into the country from Europe, from south of the border, from you name it, right? And as these ethnic groups come into America, what they do is they form interest groups and they invariably put pressure on the government to have a, a pro-Indian or a pro-Pakistani or a pro-Israel or a pro-Iran foreign policy. Some are more powerful than others. But it just goes with the territory in the United States. I don't know how many of you have seen the articles that have recently come out on the pro-India lobby that's now forming in the United States. You'll be shocked to hear this, but the India lobby is, look, is looking at the Israel lobby, and in particular APAC, as the model for how it should organize itself and how it should operate. Right? There's nothing wrong with this. I believe that we'll probably get bad policies in the end, as we do with the Israel lobby. But that's just the way the American system works. There's nothing you can do about it. Now, I'm going to make one final point on whether or not the Israel lobby is 
acting in legitimate ways. I think there is one exception to the general rule that I act in perfectly legitimate ways, in ways that, as Steve said, are as American as apple pie, and that is in the smearing of people, smearing critics of Israel, smearing critics of the U.S.-Israeli relationship, and smearing those who talk about the power of the lobby is not the way we're supposed to do business in the United States of America. And I would say that that one form of behavior is not, in my opinion, acceptable. But otherwise, the Israel lobby is just another lobby. It just happens to be very powerful. But there are other powerful lobbies as well. And some of those lobbies, like the Israel lobby, sometimes push policies that are not in the American national interest, at least in the view of Steve and John. Okay, I think we'll have to pull it to what I know a lot of people had their hands up, and I'm sorry, uh, but we reached uh, after 8 o'clock. I mean, the, I, I very rarely make predictions, but I will make one prediction about John and Steve. You won't be getting a job in any forthcoming American administration, let me tell you that. And I think you, you've, already, you've already banked on that, so you're not going to do the normal, uh, we will, we will uh, be influential in the, in the Beltway. But anyway, that's the one prediction I will make, and if I've proven wrong, John, I want to find out why. Okay, you know. <laughs> The second thing is, of course, the LSE is committed to many things, but one of those is the values of free inquiry and discussion, and I think we've demonstrated that here in spades tonight. Um, but also to show you that, I mean, I'm such a balanced chap, in a, month, in a month's time we've got Robert Kagan coming here, who was one of the early signatories um, of the New American Century and one of the strong advocates, of course, for a war against Iraq. Uh, but, uh, so there you go, balance all over the place. Um, it's been interesting to watch the crowd this evening from my vantage point. Usually, sometimes at the end of some speakers who will remain unnameable, they're streaming to get out. This evening, they're actually streaming to get in. There you go. But anyway, I'd like to thank you first, the audience, for the questions and the answers. It's, a, it's an emotional and difficult topic, obviously. It's one which has got full of, uh, full of pitfalls, and I hope we've avoided some of those this evening. But thank you very much. I think we've, uh, we've shown the LSE in its best light, and thank you very much for all that. And I mean that quite genuinely, but particularly to thank John and Stephen. I've never thought of John as being dull or Steve as being dull, but it's the first time you've both been called dull and brilliant in the same sentence by the same guy. <laughs> but anyway, I'd like to thank you on behalf of the LSE and the audience for spending the message. Thank you.